So, so what is your kind of recap of 2023 for Eastern Europe? 2023 for Eastern Europe. Well, if I was summing up one word, I would say it's still a shit show. Uh, and I'm pretty much similar to 2022, I would say. I didn't see many different developments. But there, this. but there were some developments in, in Poland, right? Yes. Well, if you're talking about the international system, I would say it's still the same. Maybe it will change next year with the American elections, which is weird, by the way, that elections will influence you so much. But yes, in Poland, we had a very major change. Uh, basically, we managed to um, elect a new government. We had eight years of a government that pretty much was very similar to, you know, Viktor Orban and trying to... Yeah rope democracy and like very anti-EU and very wing and trying to subjugate all of the branch governments and three different opposition parties want the government right now and they're trying to turn the process back right now and I wish them all the best. But Kaczynski is still there, so to speak. He is still there, but he's pretty much a lost cause. Like he, you can see that he isn't handling uh, what's happening right now very well. Uh, whenever he appears in the parliament, you can see that he's super tired. He's very weak. Uh, he loses his temper very easily. After the expose of the new prime minister in the parliament, he walked up uh, and started speaking, like, you know, some gibberish, like, oh, you are all an agent. You should be in the government. Like, you know, like, it's not some person who's calm would say. You can see that here he's speaking and he. He really didn't expect that he's going to lose. He had the entire government machine working for them for their campaign. You had companies owned by the government who basically did their campaign for them. Uh, they had the public media, which did their campaign for them. And they still lost. They invested so much money and still lost. And they're not handling it well. And everything they have worked for for eight years, it's being undone right now. So I, I don't see a future for Kaczynski in politics, to be honest. But what does uh, peace still control? So right now, they're, they still control the constitutional court. So when they came to power, they elected new members of the constitutional court, which was unconstitutional, Okay, <laughs> uh, which is fun. So the constitutional court already had all of its members chosen. They elected new ones, and they called it the constitutional tribunal. So they still control that. Up until last week, they still controlled the public media. But last week, the new government pretty much stormed the new public media by force and took it away from them. Um, what did they control? Yeah, I would say some instances of the court system. They still call some of the government-owned companies, but they're losing control day by day. And I think probably somewhere at the beginning of the next year, they will be mostly gone from the entire um, country. Uh, well, not country, but from the political system. And they still control the president, which is kind of important, but yeah. not so important in the Polish political system. The president vetoed laws, but those vetoes can be circumvented. So... So overall, current shifts towards more of a democratic government. Yes, very much. And it's very interesting because they still won the election. Like, peace yeah. had the majority of the votes. Um, but all of the other parties combined had way, way more, and they created the government. So they chose their own prime minister and are controlling the government right now. Okay. And what are the major events, like for the 24, for Polish politics? What, what you would you like? I would say that Poland will probably get back into European politics because Poland was very much on the sidelines. And right now you have a former former uh, president of the European Council ruling the country. And I think, you know, already Poland has announced that it's going to participate in more of the programs of the EU. Like, for example, uh, there is such an institution as the uh, property of the European Union, which is basically the uh, judiciary of the European Union. Poland is, has announced it's going to join. Um in terms of foreign policy, I think there will be way much more cooperation because Poland was very much isolationist when it came to foreign policy. Uh, only good relations that Poland had was still with the US, which still wasn't really perfect because, for example, the Polish government tried to or a privately media uh, and TV station, which was owned by Americans. When they tried to take it over, uh, the Americans got pissed and the US ambassador intervened and, you know, the state... They got better when the war started because suddenly Poland was needed as a you know logistics hub. Yeah. So the Polish-American relations got better. But then again, our neighbors hated us. Like Germany, they they you know they had enough. 
Lithuanians, they had enough. Ukrainians, they were grateful for all, all of the tanks, but still, the relations weren't that great. And now I think Poland will participate more, especially in the uh, European politics. But I also don't think that uh, Polish um, policy towards Ukraine will change. I still think that there will be a lot of support. Uh, I see no change there. Okay. But I think in, in relation to Ukraine, the bigger picture is more important. But I've seen some argument, I guess there was uh, some article where they for, not argue for Poland to take almost like a leadership role in, in, in European affairs, which sounds pretty interesting. This is why Poland is a very big um, proponent of the idea of admitting Ukraine into the European Union, uh, because Poland expects that Ukraine would vote similarly to Poland on many issues. And, you know, Ukraine and Poland combined would be enough to overvote Germany, for example, which Poland right now cannot do at all. It's a smaller country with uh, fewer citizens, but together with Ukraine, it would be enough to to overvote France and Germany, which right now Eastern Europe can't really do in, in European politics. You can see that still Western Europe dominates when it comes to politics in Brussels. But with the accession of Ukraine, this could shift the center of balance. And I think that Poland is really hoping for that. Okay. But in, I guess in 2023, wasn't there some tension between Poland and Ukraine? There was. There was, especially trade, it came yeah. to uh, the export of grain. Yeah. Uh, so Polish uh, agriculture isn't really doing that great. And when the European Union opened its markets to Ukraine and grain to help the Ukrainian economy, it really hurt a lot of agriculture because the price, prices of grain fell. So the Polish government went against the EU and introduced an embargo on Ukrainian grain, which they couldn't do according to EU laws, but they still did it. And this really, well, pissed off a lot of Ukrainians because, well, they were relying on the grain exports. So uh, finally they reached a deal that the grain could enter Poland, but it couldn't stay there in transit to uh, EU countries. Um, and honestly, I think this policy will remain in place, uh, even though we have a more democratic government that wants to be more uh, in line with um, EU. I still think they might uphold this embargo because, well, uh, their voters are at stake and they want to protect the domestic market, of course. So this is some real politic here playing. Coming to back to national interest, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, especially in those trying times. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, people in Poland were like pretty annoyed saying, oh, you know, we gave you like half of our military equipment and you guys are still pissed because we're protecting our own markets. So I mean, there was, you know, some tension there for sure. They still need some more. <laughs> they still need more, yes. And this is why Poland is buying so much military stuff so that they can send more of their own yeah. older equipment to Ukraine. <laughs> but I mean, they mostly, of course, I, I guess I would guess they mostly rely on, on American support in, in relation to, um, if you look at the redistribution of the support, like American support is the biggest chunk by far. It's like there's not nothing else. Yes, that absolutely, to. absolutely. Um, when it comes to the volume and the numbers, the American support for Ukraine cannot be matched by many anybody else. What was very um, helpful for Ukrainians when it comes to the Polish support was that the tanks and the artillery and all the things that Poland gave to Ukraine pretty much ready to use by Ukrainians because they knew those systems very well. They knew how to operate 72 tanks. They knew how to operate the Gvozdika uh, self-propelled howitzers because they had exactly the same models. The problem with Western equipment is, well, it is much better and much more modern, but you need to train you know, you have to train both the soldiers, the commanders, you have to train the mechanics to maintain them. So even when the West finally agreed to send, you know, Abrams and Leopards, you still needed at least half a year to train everyone. And with the Polish equipment, you just send it, it's ready to use. So that was pretty much crucial for Ukraine in the beginning of the war, because it could help to make up for the losses that they suffered in the first year of the war. Um, but now, not so much. Poland really pretty much gave everything it could when it comes to post-Soviet equipment, and now Ukraine will have to rely way much more on this and probably Western Europe. Yeah, and also decisions decisions regarding the support, they come with a hesitancy and, and delay topic. So yes. it's, uh, it's a little bit, of course, annoying for what we discussed previously, uh, annoying for Ukrainians, and it also definitely doesn't let them i mean it doesn't allow them to war as active as as they as they could actually could yeah when it comes to western support i would say that the west supplies ukraine enough for them to keep fighting but not to keep winning 
That's exactly what Trump propaganda says. <laughs> and well, you know, that's the propaganda. It purely lie. It just gives you the reality and shifts so that it fits your own narrative. Maybe it adds some, you know, lies in there, but there always has to be some grain of truth in propaganda for it to be effective. And well, that is the truth. Like, why didn't uh, NATO and the European Union and the, the Americans give Ukrainian tanks in February of 2022? Yeah. Why did they give large missiles in March of 2022? Why didn't they give F-16s in they still didn't give them. It's, you know, two years. The war has been raging for two years and they still didn't any airplanes. So you can see they're just dozing military support. If, just imagine the situation. Remember when the first successful Ukrainian counter-offensive around Kharkiv. Imagine if Ukrainians had Leopards, Abrams, F-16s, long-range missiles then. This could have gone differently. Right now, it's too late for the support to be effective. Um, so, well, you could see that they just gave enough for Ukraine to keep, well, maybe winning some local successes, but not really to win this yeah. war. Way, actually, if we can uh, kind of backtrack in the sense of to explore this idea, it was before also the Russian um, escalation, the way it was before Russia announced annexation of those territories mm -hmm. and kind of um, put mostly the end of any type of negotiations potentially because now the issue is it's uh, I mean officially it's part of Russian territory and now you have to deal with this issue of um, basically lands that Russia occupied which makes it almost impossible for Ukraine to uh, agree to any type of negotiations and makes the situation way much more complex exactly. and way much more um, impossible to solve in, in, in diplomatic fashion. Yeah, I still think that the current situation makes it impossible for any of the sides to actually negotiate because, well, I think I said exactly the same thing last year. Uh, if any government in Kiev agrees to seize territory, to cede territory to Russia, like they're done politically. Like nobody will ever support them because, well, the Ukrainian Ukrainians are pretty nationalist. Like, you have to give it to them. Like, they will not stand for giving away Ukrainian lands. And the same goes for Putin. Like, he cannot admit defeat and just withdraw from Ukraine. I, I don't see any area where these two countries can negotiate. I think both of them like to fight until the end. The uh, question is, um, who runs out of the, you know, will and supplies to do it first? Um, I think this is what Putin is counting on, is that there will be some change in Western politics and the support for Ukraine stops, which is, you know, something that very might as well happen. It's very possible. And then Russia will have an easier time. I still don't think they could conquer the entirety of Ukraine and annex it into, into Russia. But, you know, they could just walk up to the Dnipro River and just yeah. annex these lands. That's very much a possibility. Or they can just wait and see um that's i mean my 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 general prediction is what i guess discussed discussed a lot of mike is uh also kind of like I, I hinted on this in our previous episode is this idea that if you if you try to analytically look forward in the sense of how situation develop i mean to me it's like it's a very scary example of 2015 so you have some form of like the end of escalation and the the beginning of this, uh, you can say it's like small era of stagnation. Uh -huh. so you think from Russian perspective, it allows Russia to completely rebounce economically. Uh -huh. I mean, it will definitely it's already adapted to sanctions. Yes. So it's like in three years, you expect like you know three five percent GDP growth. You can expect Russia to really adapt to sanction like regime, like one of the most you know severe sanction regime in in the, in the history of like the world, True. and to kind of and then to plan something ahead. And not in a way I don't think Russia has like really you know malign intentions against other nations, but if uh, the dynamic is uh, in the way it is now, so if dynamic leads us to this kind of like negative confrontation and it's like they will be just step by step this uh, um, deterioration of relations like they will just further step by step deterioration of relations so to speak so you mean with russia vis-a-vis -vis the west right yes and it will be just you know again step by step because even if you think through like if you just like just think carefully for 2015 
2021. I mean, nothing drastically really happened during this period of time, but step by step, relations deteriorated. You had like, you know, famous creep out poisoning. You had, um, I mean, of course, there were sanctions were in place. You had like those small events that attributed like back, like bad dynamic. Yes. Or basically dynamic of uh, confrontation. And I really think that's where we are now. In a way, it's like this stagnation period. And here it's very interesting because like thinking historically, I really don't think we're this time for like a bigger conflict. But <laughs> if developments, if, if, if things that develop in the way they do now, and you have stagnation with a minute, uh, minute like moments of uh, further escalation, most likely there will be another big escalation in the future. But how exactly do you define stagnation? It's just nothing changed. Like, they, like there is a kind of like a status quo in a mm-hmm. sense, like there is a frozen conflict. I mean, there's some. I, I wouldn't say that the conflict is frozen. Quite the contrary. Yeah, but you know, if you move, even if you take like I don't know one CLO. Yeah. It's not like you take. It's not like you take um, a city. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not like you take a Kharkiv. So it's not. It's nothing really groundbreaking happening. True. Yeah. I agree with you that the stagnation on the front line, it's there. I would say. I mean, Russia is making gains right now, but very slowly. But I think you also have to keep in mind that both sides are investing enormously in this war. So it's not like Russia just, yeah, or, yeah. Or either side just decided, okay, yeah, let's chill with these front lines. Both of them are trying very, very hard to change the front line. So stagnation is the outcome, not the, uh, the goal that both of the countries want to reach. Yeah. Russia is trying hard no, no. right now. And in the meantime, I feel they're fine with like freezing it. I can eat if they. Yes. And I don't think, I don't think again, freezing it not in, in some official ceasefire, but maybe freezing it in a way of, uh, of, of how things are now. Let's keep mm-hmm. it like it is. So let's not even, I guess, shoot for this. It's not like, you know, don't have like second wave of mobilization. So let's just keep things as they are using yeah. conscripts probably for replenishing those uh, or just like changing people on the front line and then you have and just waiting again for maybe we can discuss further in the episode for american elections and just looking at the how situation uh is uh, like being played out so to speak mm-hmm. and of course it's like it's it, like for me it's actually this period if you can go back to 2015 and again if you could have Against if you could if someone could have solved the problem of Crimea, right? Like back then in 2016-17, I mean, I would definitely argue they could have prevented bigger war. Mm-hmm. Again, most likely by offering something Russia uh, in exchange for, you know, not taking giving back Crimea, but not going further to Ukraine, so to speak. Or I mean, it's kind of vague. Yeah. Really. Want to go uh, in this direction, but you know what I mean. It's yeah, like, <laughs> I know there was some still some space for some compromise. Yeah, and now I feel it's where it's like, but it's also if you think through through the lens of Russian leadership, they went through the same type of cycle, like literally there was like very big escalation with the West. There was like you know heavy. I mean, of course, in for Russian economy, like the year of two thousand fifteen was the hardest year. Like every every subsequent year was a little better until you reached, you know, just regular uh, economic growth. Mm-hmm. And looking into the future, I mean, Putin is securing his, whatever he, he has, <laughs> fifth of six. <laughs> and now he being reelected in 2024, he looks into six years, more years, you know. Yes. And you could see like, and him like going through the same kind of cycle. Uh, in a way, like trying to keep things as they are, both like internally in Russia and kind of like in this um, kind of uh, Eastern European playground of international politics, so to speak. And then if, you know, kind of move into this confrontational dynamic further and further, probably escalate again. Just, well, what would be your bet? What would this escalation be? I mean, I guess we all, and it's not like a... Um, I think it would be surprised if, uh, you know, they start something with Baltic states, mm-hmm. uh, especially with the pretext of Russian speakers and stuff like this. That's, True. 
it's easy. It's not, it's not easy. It, like it just makes perfect sense from from even like audience to choose if you, if you want to choose like the, to escalate on the international arena, that would be like definitely Baltic state. And uh, this is exactly why, back to what we discussed earlier, uh, at the beginning of the war, when I said the West, well, the West is still supplying Ukraine enough to fight in the war, but not winning. I think the only countries that really wanted Ukraine to win as soon as possible were Baltics and Poland. These countries really wanted Russia to fail as soon as possible. They, you know, all of the memes with with Poland in Article Five, they are just memes. But there was something to it. Like people wanted Russia to lose very, very badly. Yeah. And in the West, people were like more, you know, yeah, cool. Let's give Ukraine weapons. They're gonna solve our problem for us. They're gonna fight Russia so that we don't have to. Uh, let's not push them too hard so that Russia doesn't start using nukes. Yeah. And countries that really feel threatened by Russia, which is definitely the Baltics, yeah. which are very small countries, but they still, you know, when you look at the, the support they are giving, it's small compared to the American support, of course, but when you look at the size of Greece, it's enormous. Same goes for, I feel, I feel like these countries really wanted to support Ukraine to win, but the rest, not so much. They feel threatened by Russia, yeah. because if something happens, these countries are the first to go. Very vulnerable. Exactly. And also, again... After after the experience in Ukraine, that's actually kind of like a piece of a cake for like I guess logistics perspective because they really cut the whole room from the NATO, like and uh, because of the Kaliningrad obviously, and it's not like they care about people in Kaliningrad or they care about human life. So yeah, <laughs> yeah we know that they don't. <laughs> and but again, it's it's interesting that if you think we're at the same kind of like uh, at the crossroads. And I mean, again, it's not inevitable that we will have a conflict in the future, but most likely if the dynamic is the same. It's like, and you have like those, like, you know, you have this score. I feel for now, you can say this is like a status quo. Mm-hmm. It's like the whole year, nothing really happened, you know, in True. the sense of the war. The last major shift was in November 22 when yeah. Ukraine recaptured Kherson and that's it. I mean, definitely had a lot of back and forth from in the media in relation who, like, you know, going to, like, uh, make the move. And obviously, Ukrainian counteroffensive failed. There was, like, a big uh, kind of backlash in the in the Western media. Why did that happen? Blah, blah. I mean, to be honest, it's very surprising <laughs> that, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's up for those analysts to kind of, um, uh, yeah, to, to make analysis of their own mistakes, I guess. <laughs> True. <laughs> but... Overall, again, if you look into the broader arc, I think the kind of I would really strongly argue that we are at this at this kind of juncture that going further we will, we will live through this stagnation while you have the snippets of further escalation. And again, like if you think like just think 2015 2000 to 2020, like nothing really happened that um, like deteriorated relations further. But there were like those moments of tension. And actually, if you look at official Russian rhetoric, so if you read Russian diplomats, what is like interesting that they actually talk about this openly. So they say like, we are not, so our intentions are not really confrontational with the West. However, if we see that the West still does recognize our like, you know, legitimate kind of um, security interests, we are ready for the worst case scenario. So that's their language, kind of how so they frame. So like preparing the the ground for this deterioration. Fun thing, like no, no one reads really like primary sources. You know, and it's like oh yeah, we discussed <laughs> it. <laughs> In a way, it's like no matter like what they say, people take like one phrase from this the whole interview. I don't know. You can take like Lavrov's uh, interview for. Uh, like, like you know, press conference for the results of the 23. It's like you can, like, they take just one phrase and then they kind of put it uh, in the headline, you know, that is, you know, feeds, like, Western narrative. But once you read, like, the whole kind of thing, kind of how the person thinks and how he, like, as a professional, replies to, like, quest, mm-hmm. you can see, like, you know, like, they're very kind of logical. It's not like they lack logic. Like, you know, they have, like, this very... Um, deliberate way of uh, thinking, which shows you, and again, deliberate in a sense, again, it's, it's not Putin's ambitions as such, but it's just foreign policy apparatus, yeah. how they frame their own, so to speak. And it's like, again, I think what they say a lot, it's just, we are you know, kind of, 
we don't want further confrontation, but we look into this dynamic. And, you know, if nothing, if, so if they continue being aggressive, kind of they continue, again, supplying Ukraine with weapons, they continue confrontational dynamic, you know, we are ready for the worst case scenario. Well, so you said that in 2015, there was still some, some room to prevent escalation. Uh, where do you see this room right now? What can be done to prevent it? Because honestly, I don't see it's ground right now. I mean, the way I look at this, it definitely should be on the level of the US-Russia negotiation. And what's interesting, you can also bring the, how Russians, I mean, actually suddenly for Americans, disconnected the whole strategic log because now they don't have like any type of agreements on, on nuclear. True. And they said like openly that this idea that, you know, we like, I mean, and it's also true because in old demands, the U.S. frames as, as an enemy and, you know, they kind of want this like kind of like a cherry picking, like we should still create a nuclear, mm -hmm. which, yeah, it sounds a little bit absurd. <laughs> True. They disconnected from political reality and they said it's not acceptable for us uh, to to kind of like work on strategic dialogue without them recognizing our interests, which is like an interesting it's actually a pretty big development because it it can it, it 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 also shows you what we discussed previously that Russia also understands that it ha it is not treated the same way as Soviet Union. Yes, because with Soviet Union strategic dialogue was extremely important because the, the idea that you know, Soviet Union gonna obliterate the U.S. was very like vivid. Yeah, and not much with Russia. True, not so much with Russia. If Even though Russia still could that it could do it. <laughs> yeah, it still could. But I guess the idea is that they like the US is not afraid of Russia. Mm. Um, mostly because I mean, I guess if you think like that strategically, the US is way much superior militarily. And it's not like anyone expects Russia to go bonkers and really start like nuking the US without no good reason. Yeah. But rather after they, like the U.S. brings some really big kind of defeat to Russia itself militarily, like let's say like destroy you know whatever like military bases across Russia, <laughs> drop some <laughs> maybe, maybe takes back Crimea, <laughs> yeah, and it can like you know it totally could do that yeah like the, the U.S. Yes. is like very strong and it's like it's not the same type of uh, like the, the like Russian type of uh, uh, peer competitor. Um, and of course, like this, and this, and this dialogue is only possible if this again kind of thinks it's thinking. But of course, knowing the U.S. and it's really not possible because understanding that I think like the West itself and the U.S. in, in specifically has troubles critically assessing its own actions, like. Okay, so uh, <laughs> let's assume we have a power in the U.S. the next year of the election. Donald Trump comes to power. D don't you think that he will rethink Biden's policies? <laughs> I think Donald Trump as a person probably, I mean, he will definitely meet with Putin. I mean, I don't think it's like for humans and he, there's no problem meeting Putin. But most likely, again, it's like this meeting is just like the tip of the iceberg in the sense that there's so much preparation beneath it. And I feel like all the State Department, uh, I mean, what you call like a deep state, in a way how people think in Washington is just there is no way like anything good can happen from this meeting. Mm -hmm. So whatever you have, it's just maybe some like communicating about like the necessity to you know, foster relations or to uh, reconcile both parties. Nothing like special. Um, which, you know, it's it, like to, to be, to, to be, I don't want to sound grim and stuff like this, mm -hmm. as we all like, usually do. But again, if you think analytically, I guess like the problem is, of course, like, the US doesn't have like this uh, critical assessment of its own actions. The idea of you need to have some feedback loop where your kind of failures, you assess them and it's okay to, to, to I mean, it's okay to make mistakes. Like, but it's detrimental. It's completely detrimental not to assess that you make mistakes. True. Like, that's really bad. So, again, if they feedback loop, then, like, the cycle kind of, like, probably continues. And you have, again, what I call, like, the snippets of escalation, where it's, like, back and forth, so to speak. But, you know, um, when we speak about war in Ukraine and Trump coming to the White House, all it would take to, to change the, the dynamic was 
you know, would be just to stop the military support for Ukraine. Like, Ukraine would definitely lose without the American military support. And Trump can do that. Even, like, the deep state, as we call it, wouldn't be able to prevent him. But, like, imagine how, how, like, the support is being done in American politics. You already have all the necessary budget allocation that has been done by someone that has, like, budget has been prepared. You know, it's been, like, calculated. Like, every piece of military equipment, like, in the Pentagon, like, they, they already had, like, all the contracts. It's also, like, a business for them, right? It's true. It's a little bit... It's also... You need to think in American perspective. It's all business-like. Yeah, the lobbyists have their so interests. They, <laughs> so they all calculated and they all kind of budgeted it. So it's not like you go ahead and just completely cut it off. Completely. Like, you know, you're going to lose jobs. You're going to lose support, so to speak, right? When you piss off big business, you might lose paying support, you know, for finances. Yeah. Because it's totally okay in the US for companies to support certain candidates. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, of course, what they can do, they can try to influence ukrainians but as you said of course ukrainians as i mean i also do believe and what we discussed previously it's not that they don't have see they do so it's not that they would willingly negotiate with russians without understanding what they get in return exactly um but then of course the question is like what they can get in return if even if the u.s can pro negotiations it's like in a way how can it's like there should be some solution to this conflict like you know what i mean It's like, eventually, eventually, if you make, like, you need to find a solution that kind of, like, overlaps, like, all the, all the kind of sides, potentially, uh, that everyone, I mean, both, like, Ukrainians, Russians, like, Americans, kind of more or less satisfied, I mean, Europeans. Well, I guess that's the nature of compromise. Nobody is fully satisfied, right? But here... I mean, at least they, they, they do, in a sense, benefit from it, because... Otherwise, again, you, you just end up in a bigger conflict, right? That's the yeah. You know, I I don't want to sound too pessimist, but <laughs> I honestly don't think I don't I see a diplomatic solution to to the current situation. I, I see only three possible solutions: is either Russia unexpectedly, you know, collapses like you have some other Prigozhin doing a coup or something, something that you cannot predict, or Ukraine collapses unexpectedly in a similar manner, or the support for uh, Ukraine from the West stops and Ukraine loses. Honestly, I think those are the only uh, options for this conflict to end, and all of them are, well, military solutions, not diplomatic yeah. solutions. But do you think, in a way, it's like a third option if Ukraine loses, it like really loses, like in the sense of like losing like all the territory, or like completely? Like, what well, is. It happened, but I still don't think this will be a very major win for Russia. I don't think Russia could control the entirety of Ukraine. Just look at just look at Chechnya, how hard it was to get Chechnya under control. Now imagine having a country 200 times bigger, and and majority of which, especially in the West, hates you. It yeah, would be yeah. hard to, to pull off. But, you know, still call it a win if Russia captured of the, you know, like... Ukrainian lands up to the Dnieper and managed maybe to install some puppet government in Kiev, that'll be a major for, for Russia. And yeah. I do think it's possible, unlikely, but possible. Okay. I mean, yeah, I, I would say unlikely, um, but possible. It's, yeah. it's, 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 I honestly think that either one or the other countries collapses first, that it will be solved on the battlefield. Yeah. It all just freezes in the way it is now. Like But you see, when if it freezes, it just gives both of the sides time to replenish their forces. I, I legit think if some ceasefire is reached, uh, you know, even informal ceasefire, what's Ukraine going to do with this time when, when there's no fighting? Regroup, get more uh, equipment from the West, get more F-16s, maybe even more arms, more of everything. What is Russia going to do with this? The same thing, get more tanks from uh, North Korea. It will be just be, you know, prolonging the same thing. Uh, this is why I think it's not in the interest of any of the sides to, to have a ceasefire. I still think... No, not a ceasefire. I don't think it's going to be... A, because official ceasefire, it's actually hard to imagine than the solution for me. Because the solution would... I mean, ceasefire would kind of indicate already the solution in the ceasefire. Like... um Because 
and having a ceasefire for Ukrainian would mean that they 100% never going to get back those terrorists. True. Yes. It's, it's just, it just means that they accept it, lose it already. So there is like this kind of risk, right? Um, so for me, it's actually hard to imagine that they agree on this fire. So do I, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think just left this idea of it's either one of them collapse, collapse. Or Ukraine losing support from the West and collapse. Or Ukraine losing support from the West. But do you do you, do you think it, it, it can potentially happen? I think out of the three series, the most plausible one is Ukraine losing support from West. All it takes is, yeah. you know, some right-wing politicians getting elected in countries like Germany or France or the U.S. Yeah, but you mean financial support or military support? Both. Kind of both. both. Yeah. I mean, the country is running entirely on Western support. Like, on its own, Ukraine would be in so much trouble right now. Maybe pro probably lost some on land. Uh, it's entirely running on Western support, and it's there's no hiding that. So if you just, you know stop the flow of any supplies, be it financial or military, I don't think Ukraine can keep with the current war effort. Maybe sounds like we uncovered the mind of Vladimir Putin here. Yes, no, I, I, well, what, what we were discussing here, I'm sure Putin knows as well. And he is gambling that, you know, he is able to uh, withstand this war longer than the West can. I still think that uh, the West... Especially, I think, countries like, you know, Poland and Baltic states. Uh, I think there's this dynamic that whenever Ukraine starts losing somewhere on the front line, yeah. suddenly there's like this big awakening in Western Europe. And it's like, holy shit, we should do something about it. But as long as there's nothing going on, they don't really care. So I do think that, you know, if suddenly the Ukrainian front line collapses somewhere and Russia ca captures a lot of territory... I'm sure Ukraine will get some more support from the West, whoever is in power. But still, that's supply Ukraine enough to keep fighting, but not winning. Okay. Well, that makes it definitely like a green picture for, uh, for, 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 for Ukraine. And of course, for, for, I mean, the West, because there's now, I mean, it also makes a kind of a, uh, I would frame it this way. It also makes me think that the West really doesn't have a legitimate strategy. Yes, like, you know, I think so strategy. as well. It's like whatever they're doing, it's it's almost like a reaction. It's like immediate reaction to some action. Mm -hmm. Yes, and then they completely lose the the understanding of what are their real goal here. And it's actually like a bigger problem because it maybe shows that whatever Putin is doing. Like he's doing it way much more strategic. <laughs> yes, that's true. And I think it all comes down to the fact that Putin is running one country and the West is, well, a collective of different countries. Even though it's clear that the US runs NATO, it cannot influence every single member of NATO to give military equipment to, 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 to Ukraine. So there's no coherent strategy because different members of NATO have different interests. And well, Putin doesn't have this problem. Yeah, but but also but also in a way they don't. I mean, again, it, it comes back maybe even to American power and what is actually American strategy and do they yeah, have strategy? Yeah, Americans also have, don't have a strategy. That's true. And I mean, if Americans, I mean, I would say they they do have a strategy vis-a-vis -vis China. Yes, in a way, it's a long-term strategy, but it, it isn't so to speak. And all the kind of events or like all the actions in relation to the war in Ukraine are more like reactions. Yeah, they definitely focus more on China right now. And I think they're also annoyed with Europeans. Uh, you know, you have Russia, which is economically, you know, two times weaker than Germany and basically the same economy as it. And I guess politicians in, uh, in one are kind of hoping that Europe will get their shit together and yeah. do and you know work out a strategy for Europe which it hasn't done so far um but yeah I guess they're just banking that ah yeah it'll be okay it's not really that much of an interest for us like even if Ukraine falls entirely it won't harm the US too much mm. uh really it won't Taiwan on the other hand if China captures Taiwan and cuts off trade routes all over the Pacific it's 
big problem for the US. So it's it's natural that they focus more over there. I would say that as we discussed when discussing your paper, their engagement in Ukraine is more normative than strategic. So it's, you know, upholding, showing the world that they are still the leader and that they're supporting supporting countries fighting for democracy and uh, fighting evil authoritarian regimes. But it's not really in their interest for Ukraine to recapture Ukraine. They don't really get anything from it. So yeah. they're sort of hoping Ukraine keeps on fighting. We supply them with uh, military equipment for them to keep Russia busy so that Russia doesn't uh, do something stupid against us. And it's a win for them. Europe, on the other hand, I don't think Europe has figured out any strategy at all when it comes to Russia. Yeah, and one one type of the strategy that you could see in the Washington is something like they expect. I mean, they understand that the change of power in Russia would be probably very drastic, yes. and you could expect, like, of course, the collapse of the state. And if you think from from the time frame or kind of into the future. So this is probably like 10 years into the future, you could see already the fragility of the state. While at the same time, I mean, you you definitely can expect, even if Trump is being reelected, I definitely see them, them still kind of supporting Ukraine. And again, as you said, if it collapses, maybe they take more land, so to speak, and like the conflict and settles on the Dnieper River, whatever. They would still kind of like bet a lot of, on on the fact that you know Putin regime eventually collapses, yeah, which is, I mean, in in it's a way, a gamble. It, it's in a way it's also a strategy, <laughs> and it also happened already uh, through, of course, Soviet Union. Yeah, Russia has a history of unexpected collapses. So. Collapse, and uh, of course, and here, like being very specific, it comes down to the change of power in in, in modern Russia. Because there is no way it will be smooth. Like it's really hard to imagine the transition of power smooth in Russia, yeah. given all the like you know problems and you know things in, in in so to speak the overall developments that it will be very smooth. So what do you think is Russia's end strategy here, starting this war and continuing it right now? I think that the Kremlin knows that Russia doesn't have a bright future, even if it suddenly caps the entirely the entirety of Ukraine and wins this war, Russia doesn't have such a bright future, I would say. What is the Kremlin's thinking? I mean, I have a, I have a, kind of a, a couple of ideas that are maybe not really connected. We can maybe try to kind of like yeah. disentangle them. I mean, I, I really think on like, if, if you're trying to think through the actions of Russian leadership, also the actions that they undertook in zeros. I think what they try to achieve, they kind of envision maybe different West Mm -hmm. and they try to kind of force the West into the direction where it has a say, like in particular say say in in European affairs, including, you know, in European and not not, not necessarily politically and economically. So it has a say, it has a, a certain leverage and authority in what it does, so to speak. And it, it, it's like the that. I mean, I truly believe that one of the things Russia tries to achieve is just to preserve this, uh, like what they call sovereignty. Mm-hmm. I mean, that to me, it seems that's the official rhetoric. And, and just like there are all, like, all those type of indications that whatever, like, Putin is doing it's it is really deeply to this idea of like we are sovereign. It's like we can do. I mean, we are actually actors. It's like we are not like um, you know, some you know countries that can only be given instructions. That yeah. we are doers. <laughs> We're not the puppets, exactly. We are not the puppets. That's I think like one idea. So I, you know, given that you know, I always think that Russian. Um, government and people in government they're very damn smart <laughs> it's not that they don't understand like style democracy i mean their kids probably studied at universities in the world and they know in democratic <laughs> democratic countries of course yeah and they know stuff in the sense it's not it, it doesn't take like you know a genius to read all the same foreign affairs article to understand like the essence of like you know western debate so to speak and i feel that this is like maybe their kind of like 
maybe they trying to 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 get a like a bigger voice in, in the western politics itself mm-hmm. and I, I feel it, it really connects it to the idea of if you think through russia like as, as they like to call it like uh, the third rome and was <laughs> it's it's actually even with the soviet union like in a way soviet union if you think through i mean it was also the west <laughs> It's hard to say that the Soviet Union was non-West. <laughs> it was because very Western. <laughs> very Western, very scientific. Like the, the, like, I mean, the apex of like science, like they kind of literally built scientific society. I mean, didn't work in practice. But, but they tried. They, they tried. They tried to be more Western than the West. They tried to be more Western than the West. And I mean, it's, it's interesting for me. It's like a schema, like, you know, a scheme from like, whatever like it's like the west like you know from the roman empire it's split and i really think like the real rome is probably done actually mm-hmm. and this is like a constantinople like that's Moscow. Yeah. That and they're really fighting for this idea of the west itself so to speak i mean this is like one of my kind of again like one type of idea that i have that's uh, and this is probably like long-term strategy so getting this i mean can like eat So in natural, it's um, getting the sovereignty, sovereignty to have a bigger influence on like European politics, and maybe then trying to envision, if think through China perspective, if you, if you try to, and if you just I mean, if you had, and I mean what, what China tries actually to do, imagine like Eurasia, like like which basically means Europe and Asia yeah. as a one space, not 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 just Europe. I mean, you, I don't know, take a train to Shanghai, which may be like, I mean, I have to say not to sound stupid, but maybe it takes you 10 hours to get to Shanghai on the train. And imagine you have like the whole, the whole like, you know, continent, like in its entirety, like being interconnected and developed, so to speak. Do you think this is the Russian vision? I think it's, it's not necessarily the Russian vision, but that's what they, that's the idea that's subscribed to. Okay. And they see themselves like again, not 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 necessarily as um, the sole authority here, but one of the poles that like that has like significant impact. But like it, it's not like it doesn't rule it, mm-hmm. but it rules this idea of uh, interconnected space, so to speak. Right? Well, well, kind of like maybe what they t- try to envision in like hundred years. How it looks like. Yeah. The question is if in their bid for sovereignty vis-a-vis the West, um, what is China's role here? Because China, I think, is really happy with the situation and Russian dependence on China grows as the war progresses on China and Chinese military support and North Korean military support. Yeah. So the question is if Russia didn't perhaps gamble too much and become reliant on China in this bid for sovereignty. I mean, it does in a way, but the the way that it, it it doesn't hurt i mean they don't exchange their sovereignty for chinese support so to speak i mean they try to this idea of they're kind of on equal footing in a way like no one dispatches like you know telegrams from uh beijing to to moscow so to speak what they should do or what they shouldn't do true in this or that event or there's no like if you think even for think tanks and how it works in transatlantic community there's no shame that germany doesn't want to supply weapons to, to, to I mean to, to to Ukraine, so in a way there is no shame. It's like not Russia not gonna shame China that they don't supply like weapons or something like this. Like you know that is true. Yes. So there is like they 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 just navigate in in realities of their own interests. So like while try, both like in reach like China tries to itself through Russian resources like you know cheap oil, cheap gas, cheap materials, whatever cheap you can get. And Russia just gets whatever it cannot get from the, mm-hmm. the West now, which is like predominantly technology, like chips, whatever. And I mean, of course, it's, it, gives, it gives you like an interesting dynamic because I don't, I, I mean, I don't envision like Russia being a nation state. Yeah. A like lot would have to change. <laughs> yeah. I don't see that Russia erases, like, in, I mean, also going further, even if maybe some Putin for Russia to be like, you know, they call Eurasian state. But like to completely erase, like I don't see like Russia erasing its European history, but rather just you know giving like taking this opportunity that they have with China develop further as a kind of 
still Russian, like still European Slavic state, if you say. Mm-hmm. But in very interesting, they mentioned that it's not, it's not influenced by America anymore. Yeah, something else. And I mean, it's influenced by America actually entirely. And because, because what's, what's interesting also in relation to Ukraine, and I guess uh, if, if you've followed like this, the whole thing with Aristovich, who, who, I mean, obviously like a Ukrainian, former Ukrainian, like uh, advisor to Zelensky. And now he has like this rhetoric, this is kind of pro, pro-Russian, like in a way it's mm-hmm. like weirdly pro-Putin. Like, you know, that like Ukrainians actually can get really disappointed in, 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 in the US and in the West eventually. What we discussed maybe in relation to my paper, you know, all this, um, I mean, middle fingers that they eat now, like, you know, they, they will just like, you know, we ate enough middle fingers here. Uh, <laughs> actually, this is uh, something that, uh, well, well, a long time ago, but something that the Ukraine, uh, not Ukraine, sorry, Hungarians learned. Yeah. Uh, so you remember when Hungary had their huge uprising against the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union invaded Hungary. The Hungarians really thought that they would receive support from the West. Yeah. They really, you know, they said, we are here fighting for the West and we are fighting for Europe. Yeah. And they received zero support. So um, this was, I guess, disappointing for them. Yeah. Um, and yeah, sadly, Ukraine might suffer such a disappointment as well in the future. Eventually in the future. But maybe it's the topic for a next episode to discuss. Probably, how, yes. How this will be do- too deep how do Slavic states relate to each other? Because I feel what, what is also missing, and of course no one discusses it, is, is this like in, also interconnected to of like Slavic nations like themselves, so to speak. Which, you know, topic, it's like, like Slavic nations per se way much more interconnected like culturally than like Germany, France, Dan- Denmark, what, like England. Like they are yeah. not connected at all. Like, <laughs> I would say Slavs are one huge dysfunctional family. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe it's the <laughs> perfect title for the next episode. <laughs> the dysfunctional family of Slavic countries. <laughs> to Sounds be, perfect. To be united. <laughs> exactly. Okay, thank you very much. And thank we'll, you. We'll see each other next episode. And next year, I guess. Yeah, sure.